Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. There's a metta practice that we did in the end of the sitting, the loving-kindness practice, uh, is part of the Buddha's uh, teaching. Is actually about cultivating this part of uh, well-wishing, cultivating intentions of kindness, uh, of love. And I thought it uh, good to highlight this also because uh, tomorrow is the holiday for Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And this is one of the areas in which uh, the Buddha and Martin Luther King Jr. overlapped in their teaching. Uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. had uh, taught about nonviolent action and using that as a force for positive social change, in this case around civil rights and racial justice, and then later on actually around uh, justice or economic, around economic justice also. So the Buddha talks famously, uh, hatred will not cease by hatred, hatred will only cease by love. This is a universal law. So that was 2,600 years ago. And then uh, actually this is repeated by Gandhi uh, in India, and then also repeated by Martin Luther King Jr. So it sounds like it might be a universal law since through different times and uh, different cultures, which is also taught about. So here's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away at its vital unity. Hate destroys a person's sense of values and their objectivity. It causes them to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. And then here in another similar uh, similar teaching uh, course, and the Buddha also taught us all to uh, work out your own liberation with diligence. And here's uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. says: Freedom in the larger and higher sense, every person must gain for him or herself. So these are uh, similar and common teachings of many spiritual. Uh, practices and different spiritual traditions around love and uh, kindness and cultivating this uh, heart of well-wishing too. One of the more unique dimensions of the, the Buddha's teaching is the aspect of mindfulness, which many of you know about from uh, coming here, or from different practices that you've done, uh, or maybe even just from being in society. So mindfulness has actually started to take uh, root in uh, modern Western society as a concept, as a practice, in a variety of different ways. So since we've been doing the Eightfold Path, and uh, each week we've been covering a different aspect of the Eightfold Path, we come now to mindfulness, which is kind of like the crown jewel in Buddha's teaching, the unique and uh, kind of unifying one in some ways. Uh, so I want to talk to you about mindfulness today, uh, both kind of cover the basics about it, which is good for people who are new, but even for people who are not new, uh, it helps as a refresher, as a reminder. Uh, and then also to talk a little bit about this uh, dimension of mindfulness seeping into our culture and what that's about and um, what the implications of that might be. So some basic things about mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? Uh, I mentioned in the meditation as I was describing it, you know, that uh, the word for mind and heart are actually similar. And so in the Pali language, there's a word for mind and heart, which is the same. And 
actually in many Asian cultures when people will say something about like, thinking something, they might point here to the heart. And I appreciate this particularly in context of mindfulness because sometimes when people hear mindfulness, they go to thinking about something, like thinking about the breath or thinking about your body sensation. And mindfulness is actually this direct knowing. You know, mindfulness is this sense of presence, of this knowing that is beyond the mind itself, even though the word mind is in there. So heartfulness sometimes can get at that better because it is actually this intimacy with experience. So it's not a separation from experience. It's like knowing directly what is actually happening now. So mindfulness is an intentional knowing in the moment, so it's always in the present moment. And it's knowing something directly, without filtering, without judging, exactly as it is. So for example, one of the dimensions of mindfulness we can know is the body. And this is what we practice in uh, the beginning of meditation with connecting with the body sitting here, uh, connecting with the breath. So this is a dimension of mindfulness of the body. And so how we do this is actually just knowing the body exactly as it is. So mindfulness is actually very simple in this way. So it's just knowing is this cold or hot? Is this vibrating or tingling or still? Is this uh, movement? Is this feel liquid? Does it feel uh, smooth or jagged? As simple as that. And in fact, mindfulness can be practiced by anyone. So no matter how old you are, the small children actually are learning mindfulness. Uh, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good looking. <laughs> and, uh, you don't have to be rich. None of that, right? So it's just knowing directly. Like if you can stick your hand into a cup of water and know if it's cold or hot, not because it says in the outside, cold or hot, but just knowing that directly, then that's practicing mindfulness. But it's knowing this directly in our own experience. So what happens so often is that, for example, with a sensation in the body, there is a direct sensation, say in your knee, for example, and mindfulness is just knowing exactly what that is. It's a twinge, it's heat, it's cold, it's pulsing, it's stopping, it's moving, right? But pretty soon we get a sort of overlay on that. And the overlay comes in the, in the uh, way of thoughts about it. So, oh, my knee hurts. My knee hurts a lot. I should move my knee or it will continue to hurt. I wonder when the meditation period will be over. Why isn't the bell ringing so on? I should move my knee or it will hurt a lot and soon I won't be able to walk very well and next time I should take a chair. Anyway, so actually the mindfulness of the sensation itself is just knowing that twinging sensation, just as it is. And you can actually also be mindful of thoughts. So the, it's it's helpful to notice that the purpose of meditation is not actually to uh, annihilate all thoughts from your mind. <coughs> so thinking is fine. Thinking is like a natural function of your human life, just the same as your mouth secretes saliva. You know, you could say your brain seems to secrete thoughts. Or something like that, right? uh, so it's not like a problem that needs to be stopped, per se. Uh, but it's possible to actually bring mindfulness to this process of thinking, too. So in the Buddhist teaching, there's actually six different sense doors that we have. Uh, so there's five sense doors that you usually consider, that you probably learned in kindergarten. So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, your body, hearing, right? Five sense doors. And the sixth sense door is actually the mind. And through these different sense doors, what we call our life unfolds. And what we call our life is this rapid succession of different moments 
of consciousness meeting a different object through these sense doors. So, for example, uh, sight. So, the phenomenon of sight arises, there has to be consciousness, there has to be an eye, and there has to be some object of sight, and then there's sight. And then similarly sound. Right? There has to be ear, possibility of hearing, and consciousness, and there has to be sound. And that arises and passes away. And actually what we call our life is this rapid succession of these different moments of feeling sensations in the body, of hearing, of seeing, uh, of smelling and tasting, and actually of the mind also. So the mind includes thinking, it includes images, it includes uh, everything that we call the past and the future is actually an occurrence in the present in the mind, it's actually a thought in the mind. So this illusion of time gets created, so all of this actually is, is part of our experience of life. And all of this is actually something that we can bring mindfulness to. So mindfulness can meet any object. And in the Buddhist teachings and in the practice of the, uh, the meditation, we actually sort of build up from first paying attention to the body, which feels like a relatively, um, uh, it's like a relatively gross object, so to speak. Like the body is, uh, you know, there's usually something to feel, and it's less subtle than, say, like a thought or an emotion, something like that, like whatever it is. So we try to be present in the body, like fairly simple. Just knowing you're sitting here, feeling your breath as best you can. But also, this attention can be brought to anything. So it actually can be brought to the sense of sound, of hearing. You can be mindful of sound. You can be mindful of sight. It's a little bit harder because we're actually usually very invested in the content of sight and identified with it and stuff like that. But it's possible to be aware of sight with mindfulness. So likewise, it's also actually possible to be aware of thought with mindfulness too. So nothing is outside of the realm of mindfulness, of, of the sense of presence. So what is this actually like when you're actually able to be mindful of something? So there's a sense of knowing it directly as it is. There's a sense of being close to that experience. And sometimes people will describe it as like, oh, it's like you're being an observer, right? There's like an observer. So that's only true in the sense that there's less identification than there usually is with an experience that we have. So in the sense that usually there's a body sensation and immediately there's a perception like my knee, this is my knee, etc. So that perception itself is actually an arising in the mind. That's actually something else that can you can bring mindfulness to, but that's different than the sensation in the body itself. So mindfulness can actually float between all of these six senses, this quality of mindfulness, this quality of presence. Although mindfulness is a pretty unique part of the Buddha's teaching and a very important dimension of it, uh, I feel like it actually is common among many different spiritual traditions in the sense that uh, if you can, can consider people who you might have met, who you would consider like a, a certain holy kind of person or a sacred person, or someone who seems to be uh, wise, oftentimes they seem to have a sense of presence about them. Like whether or not they you know, know mindfulness or know meditation or any of this stuff, right? there's some sense of being aware, of being awake, of presence, of this mindfulness. Like actually when you're talking to them, it's like they're paying attention to you. And the nice thing is that all of us can actually cultivate that. So all of us can actually become someone like that. You know, for ourselves, for others in the world, you know, of cultivating this sense of presence. 
So mindfulness is also coupled with concentration, which we talked about uh, the last time. So concentration is that kind of bringing the collectedness together, the collectedness of our energy. Uh, and that is something that is actually common in many different spiritual traditions of like developing concentration on a word, on a phrase, on an image, on an object. And then the, one of the unique things about this uh, insight practice, about the Buddhist uh, meditation practice, is actually coupling that with mindfulness, so with this sense of presence. So actually collecting the attention, but then instead of focusing it on some particular uh, word or phrase or something like that, it's actually applying that to being present to whatever it is that is unfolding in our experience. So why do that? Like, uh, so maybe it seems helpful in some ways, like you can you know, develop this sense of being present and listening to people and so on. Uh, part of this is the, uh, the gist of the whole practice is aligning yourself with the way things are. So I think in the first time that I talked about the Eightfold Path, I talked about the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, like the teachings about the truth of the way things actually are. And that the more that we're actually in alignment with this, the more that we actually get it, then the happier we are, the more harmonious our life is, the less friction we have fighting against how things in fact actually are. So mindfulness helps us to tune into that, helps us to become aware of how things actually are on a moment-by-moment basis, on a larger basis, uh, in many different dimensions. So mindfulness is simple, as I mentioned, uh, but it actually uh, is not necessarily easy to do in a continuous way. So it sounds super easy, it's just like sticking your hand in a cup of water, like why can't we all just do that? No, it's cold, no, it's hot, right? So it's because our, our attention has not actually been trained in this way. Like, we're not used to doing this. So a lot of the times, we're not actually mindful. Right? Some of the mundane uh, ramifications of this are uh, we forget where we put things, or we don't remember if we turned off the lights when we left the house, or uh, did I turn off the toaster? I don't remember. Right? So, just because in the moment of either turning off or not turning off the twister oven, like we were actually lost in thought, like we were not actually present in the moment of us doing that. So there's very uh, kind of mundane helpful things about training yourself to be more But also it actually is the gist of the whole path, of actually becoming more and more uh, of a resident in the present moment with awareness. So in which we actually can know what is happening right now. And the other than what is happening right now is actually sort of piece that together with some comprehension. So like, what is actually my life? Who am I? What is reality? What's it all about? What is the path to happiness? What is the path away from happiness? So all of this can be developed, can be understood with this simple but very powerful tool of mindfulness. So as we pay attention, we notice that things are changing. So we notice that all of these different experiences, they come and go, they come and go, they come and go. We notice that they basically seem to be out of our control. So the physical body itself, our experience of the physical body. There's just these different experiences that seem to come and go. Some of it, it seems like, okay, I can imagine it to be less 
hot or less cold or something, but still the body seems to just unfold in its own way. Similar with the mind, with emotions. Right? It's not to be uh, attentive to that. But our emotions also just seem to unfold in their own way. Like they don't seem to come on cue. They just seem to like, arise in different ways, like as conditions seem to come to uh, fabricate them. Uh, similarly, our thoughts, right? Our thoughts are not following the script. So, when you're sitting here, like different thoughts probably occur to you, and it's not necessarily like you had queued them up, you know, like a sort of iTunes playlist, like first thought about this, and 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 thus, our attempts to actually control them, or to even solidify around them, to call something uh, some solid entity, uh, are actually kind of futile. So then we notice, like, well, what is it that's causing uh, suffering or difficulty in our life? So usually it's mistaking something that is impermanent to being permanent, right? something that is not solid to being solid, and then trying to keep it that one way forever. Trying to rely on things that are actually unreliable. It's not their fault they're unreliable, right? they just are unreliable. <laughs> like it's, just, it's just the way things are. And then things are unreliable and we get mad at them for being unreliable. You know, whether that's uh, you know, the object that breaks down, bicycle gets a flat tire, you know, uh, the light that keeps flickering, any number of different things. But it's actually just the nature of things. So the more we're actually able to know that, and with mindfulness, we're able to actually notice this and get this on this deeper and deeper level. Then basically, the less we suffer. So the same way that, like, uh, you know, little kids might be building uh, houses made of bricks or even lots of cars, and then when it falls down, they might get really upset. Like it's really upsetting to them because, like, they thought they built that, they thought that was going to stay, but then it fell down. So as you get older, you know, like, that's the car, you're going to build that, it's going to fall down. So enjoy it while it's up, but, you know, the wind blows or someone comes by, and, you know, uh, it's just going to fall down, it's not going to last forever. So for most of us that grown ups, like, we don't get too devastated by that with the house of cars. But with a lot of other things, we still do. And yet everything in some way is like this house of cars. So it's there for the moment, and then it's gone. There for the moment, and then it's gone. And the beauty of bringing mindfulness to experience is that also we can actually enjoy things more. So if we actually understand that everything is temporary, nothing lasts, then we can have a different relationship to it. It's somewhat like if you knew you were meeting your friend for the last time, they're going to go on a long trip. Or seeing someone right before, it seems like they're going to die. Or seeing someone before, they're moving out of your house. You would actually really pay attention in a different way. And there's a certain poignancy to that. So it's like, oh, like, oh, this is our last time together. This is actually very special. Like, let me pay attention to you. But this is actually true of every moment and everything. It's that every time, we don't know if it's going to be the last time. And every time is the last time in that particular configuration. So cultivating this sense of presence, this sense of mindfulness, allows us to be there for everything, too, and actually enjoy it much more. Be much more present when it's there and then let it go when it's gone, knowing that's the way it is too. So mindfulness has been uh, brought in more and more uh, into 
various different uh, modern training institutions, different chapters. And I just want to talk a little bit about them, uh, too. So I mentioned that my source is taught in uh, some to little kids, and uh, there is a growing project of teaching mindfulness in schools to actually even very small children. And uh, some friends of mine are not part of this and teaching this. Maybe some people here are too. Uh, Martina Snyder, who comes here sometimes and teaches also, is, uh, has taught there. And once I uh, tied along with her to her classes, uh, and uh, it was very sweet to see uh, little kids learning mindfulness. So they don't sit for 35 minutes, they sit for like, you know, five minutes or something. Uh, but they're really into it. Like, it's actually kind of, uh, it's very cool. They're like, very sincere about it. And they do short, short classes, you know, 15-minute classes. And some of it was actually feeling your body, feeling your breath. Uh, some of it was actually sound, like they had a little rain stick thing, and they turned upside down. And they took turns who got to be the one to turn upside down. And then, uh, you know, listening until they heard, like, all the sounds and then until all the time was gone, basically. Then they did a mindfulness of eating thing with, you know, raisins, or I think M&M's is a special one, right? So being aware, you know, trying to be really aware, like, what does it actually feel like in your mouth? What does it actually taste like? Um, when does it taste finish? What does it feel like to swallow that? Right? So being really mindful of that. Like, I really love that. And then, uh, I think in one of the classes, they actually also did mindfulness of emotions. They actually even did mindfulness of feelings, like describing how you're feeling in that emotional terms. Which is really super helpful, right, for any of us to be able to know that. So it's like, oh, knowing when you're angry, like before you actually hit another kid, right? um, or before you like break something, because you're mad. So knowing that and then being able to have some space of choice towards like how you're actually going to work with them, what you're actually going to do. So also for a long time there's been uh, this uh, mindfulness space stress reduction. So there's an application of mindfulness to uh, settings in which people are working with chronic pain or with health issues. And uh, this has been around for about 30 years now and uh, developed by John Kabat-Zinn who came to, uh, actually I got a chance to meet him and talk to him uh, last year and he told me that this came to him on a 10-day Vipassana uh, retreat. Suddenly it, uh, he had this vision for all of this, this application of this to chronic pain. And then has actually then been studied and proven to be very helpful uh, to people who have pain, to become very present with it, um, knowing what's the actual pain, knowing what's the reaction to the pain, you know, the stuff that goes out. Mindfulness is now being actually applied in many different settings. So there are mindfulness centers at universities, at UCLA, uh, another colleague of mine on the Spirit of Rock Teacher Council runs that center. Uh, it's associated with the medical school at Oxford in England. There's a mindfulness center. Uh, UMass has been one for a long time. Mindfulness research is really big now. So it's being done in all kinds of areas, but alcoholism, about mental health issues, eating disorders, psoriasis, uh, mindfulness in pregnancy, uh, sleeping disorders, smoking cessation, everything. In fact, I think there's been uh, over a hundred studies that are being studied right now through the National Institutes of Health around mindfulness and blank and around the effectiveness of this. Uh, and pretty much all of them are proving like it helps. <laughs> Whatever you say of blank thing is like it actually helps. Yeah. Uh, mindfulness is being brought also to different companies. So it's being uh, recognized as a way for people to develop 
self-awareness, which helps people who are leaders, which helps people who are uh, workers both to feel less stressed, but also to uh, learn how to moderate their own behavior, to learn how to be more present, to learn how to actually work more effectively, effectively and uh, efficiently. And this is in all kinds of companies, so including uh, you know, a lot of tech companies in the Bay Area, including Google, uh, Genentech, uh, but also ones you might not expect, like Raytheon, uh, General Mills, Procter & Gamble. So all of them have developed mindfulness uh, classes or trainings for people and uh, organizations. So it's kind of been this, this exponential growth in um, mindfulness as applied to different fields. Uh, or sports, I should mention that, especially now we're in the football playoffs. So another colleague of mine uh, has done a lot of work in uh, teaching mindfulness in sports teams. So he actually uh, taught mindfulness to the LA Lakers and uh, Chicago Bulls uh, under Phil Jackson when they were uh, big champions and uh, uh, taught all these professional basketball players and mindfulness for them. And basically described it as you know, helping them learn how to not let other things distract them, how to be focused, how to be present in the game, which helps in sports. In sports, just like in life, but like you don't know what's going to happen next. It's good to be really focused, it's good to be really present, and that helps you to act appropriately, right, to know what's the right thing to do. Also, mindfulness is being taught in prisons. So, uh, prisons are kind of like um, forced retreats for people, right? <laughs> Under difficult circumstances, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's actually very, very moving, uh, very uh, effect that mindfulness classes I've had in prisons, you know, it's like, so some people actually come around to really wanting to uh, work with their minds and realizing, like, you know, you can imprison your body, but actually your mind can have some freedom. Uh, and that's had phenomenal success in decreasing hostility in prisons and fights, uh, in addition to people's just uh, own subjective sense of freedom that comes from that, too. And there's programs in many different prisons that I'm speaking with, including in San Quentin. So mindfulness is very powerful, right? So very narrowly speaking, it's this meditation that we do. So this meditation is kind of the training. So it's like the uh, mindfulness uh, practice, kind of like the finger exercises or the you know, developing that mindfulness muscle. And yet also I'd encourage you to consider, like, how can I actually apply mindfulness in my life? In so the sitting meditation is a good thing to do, and walking meditation also, so developing mindfulness in motion. But really it's helpful when it starts to kind of seep in to your life in more and more different ways. So sometimes people say like, well, how long should I practice for? Or how often should I practice? And they think like, oh, I should do like half an hour, or I should do an hour is better, you know, once a day. Uh, and it's very helpful to practice daily, so I'll definitely encourage that. Uh, and of course, the longer period you can do, then that's good. Right? But also I think it's really good to, to kind of build in short periods very often. So this kind of akin to how in, uh, in Islam, uh, Muslim spiritual practice actually to pray five times a day. So actually five times a day to like recollect and focus on what's important to you. So you could consider like what are ways in which I could actually have some moments of becoming more grounded, of developing presence, of just like connecting with my body, connecting with my heart, connecting with my mind. And you know, for Muslims, the prayer times are when they wake up in the morning, 
and then at midday, I believe that's the mid-afternoon one, and then uh, sunset, and then uh, nighttime, right, before bed. So like, what if you actually built in some moment of mindfulness for yourself at some gesture like that? And the moment of mindfulness could be just taking three mindful breaths. It could be just at a meal time, just trying to take a mindful bite of the meal. Uh, it could be even lying in bed, just trying to connect with your body as you're lying there. It could be taking a mindful walk down the hall, something like that. Uh, but just actually building in more and more, I think, uh, in your life is a really helpful way to kind of start to reconnect, reconnect. So the word for, for mindfulness in Pali is sati, and it actually means that you remember. It's actually just like remembering, remembering to be present. So again, it's like a simple thing, but it's not easy to do. Uh, and it's like a training. You know, it really is a training of ourselves in this way. So with mindfulness, I would encourage you, like, don't be, uh, try not to get frustrated, like, when you're trying to, pr- to practice mindfulness, and for the thousandth time, you're, like, lost and you haven't been. Like really, each time that you come back, each time that you connect, each time that you remember, is planting the seed again for this quality to be there in your life more and more. And what I've found for myself is that the more that I actually um, practice this, then the more that it actually spontaneously tends to arise, too. So it kind of reinforces itself and builds upon itself, and there's a momentum that gets developed of mindfulness in your life. And then it can be there, you know, when you need it. Like it can come up when it's uh, when it's needed, and sometimes that's when you intentionally remember, like, oh, okay, intense emotional situation. Let me try and be mindful. Like, what am I feeling? What am I about to say? What am I feeling in my body? So sometimes it comes up intentionally, and sometimes it's nice to see that it just comes up continually, spontaneously from the practice. And I know many of you have had experiences of this in your life at different times from your practice. So also, sometimes this helps people is that, um, you know, there have been more and more scientific studies of mindfulness and, um, and its effect on the brain. So not just mindfulness and blend, but it's actually mindfulness itself and how it affects our brain. And uh, the thoughts about brain uh, growth and brain chemistry and so on was in the past was that, you know, um, when you're little, your brain develops in a small house, and then at a certain point you kind of get, like, frozen, and then you're kind of stuck with how your mind is. And so that's why it's important to like have little kids like learn a lot of stuff and teach them languages and feed them good nutrition because that's like the time your brain grows and then you're kind of stuck with what you got by the time you're like 20 or something, right? So new research shows that this is actually not true and that actually our, our brain continues to grow and change and uh, it's possible to actually change neural pathways in our brain. It's actually possible to activate different dimensions of our brain. And mindfulness is one key way that this can be done. So the first studies were done in people who are like, um, you know, real meditation adepts. So they pull some, you know, monks out of like a cave somewhere and like <laughs> sit in a lab and put all these electrodes on them, um, monitor them, and you know, it's like, like amazing, it's marvelous, like how they seem to be able to their brain works and stuff. Right? Uh, so there's a proof that it works in this one way. But then the newer studies are on people who are like regular smokers who have jobs and you know. <laughs> are not really the case, but who um, actually do some uh, regular, even short meditation practice, like half an hour a day kind of thing. 
And notice that actually this does change the patterns of people's minds. Like actually it can be scientifically proven that like activates different aspects of the mind. Right? In which uh, there's less stress, there's more of an orientation towards um, positive affect states, aka happiness, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and away from more uh, aggressive and uh, you know, fear, anxiety, aggression kind of state. Right? So it's totally possible. And I say this also because um, I'm, I'm giving this in a very like um, uh, like not detailed way. So if any of you want to look this up and stuff, like I encourage you to look on the internet and like check it out about uh, these studies. Um, because for some people, this gives them a lot of faith that this is actually possible. Right? So not because the grammar teacher says it's possible or the student says it's possible, but now neuroscience says it's possible, mm-hmm. right? But scientists say this is actually possible to actually change your brain and change the way that your mind works uh, and actually gain happiness in this way. So it's scientifically proven now. So here's the Buddha just talking about this view. Uh, mm-hmm. um, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if already dead. So strong words, right? and uh, <coughs> when you hear that again, you might feel like, oh, but you know, I'm heedless so often. So the first thing that you write often with mindfulness, okay, uh, is how not mindful you are, right? Um, but this is actually positive progress because you weren't that mindful before either, but you didn't notice. Okay? <laughs> so you know, the, the first step in insight is often like seems like bad news, but it actually is good news. Uh, good practice. And then it's really just, you know, to to continue, like to continue on to try not to let yourself be discouraged by what you see. And actually now you have a clearer picture about the listening thoughts, and then just, you know, practice. And the more that you do it, the more you can also take joy in doing that. Uh, the more you can actually cultivate your mind and heart. The better it is for yourself, and also the better it is for the world. So I'll stop there with uh, talking about mindfulness and see if there's any questions or comments that people have, uh, either about the first part, which is what is mindfulness, or even about application of mindfulness in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your what's your experience of that? So you're talking about the observer witness versus yeah. Yeah, so there's a sense of knowing something, and then there's the thing itself, right? And the knowing seems to be separate from the thing itself. Is that basically what you're describing, right? Um, so the knowing is not the same as the thing itself, and yet also is completely connected to that, right? Uh, I mean, one thing to explore, so, so part of what, what um, is there to be discovered is to poke holes in our usual sense of who we think we are, basically. Right? So, our usual sense of ourselves as being this solid observer that moves through life, consuming experiences, uh, consuming objects, having relationships as some like permanent uh, solid entity. Right? Uh, so part of this, as it gets more and more subtle, is even in this sense of the observer. So sometimes the sense of the observer can arise as a sense of 
myself. It's like, well, who, who or what is that? Like, is there actually a, a solidity to that? Or is that also just a perception of that experience, of that side of the experience? Uh, in other ways, like, well, where can we locate any permanent sense of self in consciousness itself as a fleeting experience? Like, it actually is uh, impossible to find something or to find something that is, in fact, uh, personalized in the same way that we usually identify ourselves as personal. Like, consciousness itself has no nationality, gender, uh, name, identity, anything. Right? It seems to be, like, uh, free of all of that. So I'll, I'll just do the exploration of that, I think, like, with awareness, and kind of having fun with this exploration, too. And if any of you, like, don't have any idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it also, you know. Um, but just get interested in, like, sort of checking it out, uh, if that's sort of interest. But if not, you can also. Not. <laughs> if it's confusing. So I was describing also these different ways in which mindfulness is being applied, like in uh, society, like different um, professions and so on. Right? And I feel like this is actually one of the interesting dimensions as. Um, Buddhism, but its practice moves into Western society. Like as as it's moved over the 2,600 years through different cultures, it kind of takes on different flavors um, depending on the culture and the time and what's there. Right. And so now, as it's moving into a lot of Western cultures, there's some sense of like different dimensions seeping into uh, various aspects of our life. So, including in psychology, including in science, including in education, and so on. So. One uh, place of interest to for all of you to consider, like, what's the way in which mindfulness can be brought into the other stuff that I do in my life? Right? Whether it's your work or your hobby or your activities, right? Uh, so this is not to say, like, oh, everyone go out and do mindfulness studies for say, right? But just, you know, actually, like, to actually consider, like, how can I actually bring this into what I'm actually doing? Um, here's a surprising one. Uh, is that uh, mindfulness is also being used now by the military. So uh, they've been doing mindfulness training in the military and um, they did some studies about you know, uh, helping military groups prepare for deployment to Iraq. So they actually uh, had a control group in which people didn't get mindfulness and then other people did. And then they taught them, uh, they gave them some sort of mindfulness program, which of course they decided to trademark called Mindfulness Based Mind Fitness Training TM. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway. <laughs> and then, um, you know, basically gave them mindfulness training and then, uh, you know, covered different topics of relevance in the Marines about uh, monitoring their stress, stress reactions and um, mindfulness skills and uh, in the body and so on, right? And they actually found that it was very helpful to people's uh, mental resilience. Right? So here's a quote from one of the scientists in that. Our findings suggest that just as daily physical exercise leads to physical fitness, engaging in mindfulness exercises on a regular basis may improve mind fitness. Uh, so it was great. Like, you know, they have all these people do all these push-ups and all this stuff, right? So they're really going to it's like, oh, actually, maybe helping them with their mind. Especially going into very stressful, um, mental situations. Uh, 
Building mindset and mindfulness training may help anyone who must maintain peak performance in the face of extremely successful circumstances. First responders, relief workers, trauma surgeons, professionals, Olympic athletes, etc. Et so this is going to be a little controversial. It's like, well, uh, you know, bringing mindfulness in, but here you could say it's like minus the dimension of wisdom, uh, overall wisdom. And I think it's good for anyone to have mindfulness. So I'm not against this program at all. But then it's like, oh, and then we're going to send people out to kill other people, right? Um, which is inherently like a stressful and uh, problematic activity, right? Like it actually is like, uh, you know, uh, not uh, recognizing the interconnectedness of us all, right? And I think that people, uh, any like non-crazy person, if you're not already crazy, like having to be in a situation in which you're forced to kill someone or be killed is actually super stressful and will cause physical, like mental, uh, mental, uh, Reaction, right? Like it seems like that's like that's like out of balance with the way things are, out of harmony, right? Uh, so you know, to do the mindful study to make people more resilient is good, but then you know, to send them off to actually have to kill people or be killed is like not so good, right? But still, there it is. So they're they're actually recognizing also that then it's helpful for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, on the other side, and different mental disturbances. So you know. It's good they're getting in the beginning, it's good in the end, but then it's actually really hard in the middle. Right? And I heard recently that actually I think more people had um, committed suicide in the military that actually died from uh, combat in these last uh, few years. Right? Which to me is also a sign that it's like it's such a uh, toxic, difficult situation for a human being to be put into. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, this is just the. The Eightfold Path works all together, so mindfulness is one dimension of it, and it often is talked about also with this sense of clear comprehension, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Right? So similar to when I was talking about concentration and what's like wise concentration, perfect concentration. So the concentration of like the dog on the dog biscuit, or you know, uh, mindfulness of someone out there breaking in somewhere, or you know, mindfully harming someone else. So that's not actually the wise mindfulness, skillful mindfulness. Right? Like it has to be with this sense of wisdom and development. Connected to ethics, but I thought it was interesting. So that being recognized in all these different steps, you know, yeah. Is mindfulness like military mindfulness without the connection to the heart? Is that really mindful? Yeah. No, this is a very interesting question. As mindfulness is being brought in in this sort of like more secular way, right? And uh, you know, it sounds like in this training that they did, sort of pre going into the uh, combat zone, it was actually teaching people to connect with their body, with their emotions. You know, I don't know this intimately, but it actually was a mindfulness that was about uh, this connection. Mm-hmm. So it actually is mindfulness in that sense, right? Uh, but there is a way in which uh, teaching mindfulness without the whole ethical framework or without this whole other dimension is not um, sort of the full package, I would say. Now, some people would say that, like, oh, well, isn't it that mindfulness itself is, like, um, the key piece? So if you actually just teach people mindfulness, won't everything else unfold from them, right? Like, won't people actually naturally just notice, like, oh, it's uh, harmful when I hurt someone or something like that. And, you know, there's different schools of thought about that. But, the, you know, the, the uh, path is really taught as the eightfold path. So I think it is important to have all these different dimensions in it. Now, which dimension you tend to engage with, like at any given moment, can be different, but like it all does go together. 
on this other dimension of the past about skillful and skillful too. It's not that things in conflict with each other, but I think unless you're mindful, you can't know what the state of mind is. Like you, you can't know whether it's skillful or unskillful, so that has to be there. But then also, so there's at some point this level of discernment, right? of, of clear seeing and knowing. And it's part of the unfolding of the past towards like, okay, what needs to happen next? What leads away from that? You know, what's in alignment with the way things are, what's not? Right? Yeah, so the question is about what about the investigation of, of something uh, and how does that connect with the mindfulness? So yeah, that's a, is, is an important part of the practice also, is actually becoming curious, so being interested, and then bringing mindfulness actually even closer to some experience. So in that way, mindfulness and also concentration can work together. Like with this, this is usually is considered another quality of the mind, of investigation, uh, of bringing that in to actually know, like, oh, what is it actually like, this thing that I'm calling back pain or something? Or what is this emotion actually like? Like, what does fear actually feel like in my body? Right? To actually know that directly. So investigation is a very important quality in that too. And mindfulness helps with that. So there's your uh, your practice for the week then, is actually to consider ways in which you can bring mindfulness into your life. So you could consider this sort of like multiple times during the day kind of strategy and see how that works for you. So like what if I actually tried to find many different moments of possibly grounding myself in mindfulness to help with this kind of remembering function. So other things people have used, and some of the, I think Tika Han suggests different things like um, if you're driving, or if you're in a bus or something, when it comes to the red light, like make that be a time to connect with the breath or to be, become mindful of the body, right? Or if your phone rings, make that be your mindfulness bell, like before you pick it up, right? Let it ring once, take one breath, then pick it up, right? Uh, so any number of different creative things you can do. Sometimes people use different, like going through doorways, make that be like your mindfulness archway, right? When you go through that archway, it's like connect with your body. And then you can notice how you're doing that too. So um, uh, one of my friends was spent time in Plum Village in Thich Nhat Hanh's um, uh, center in France and he said that uh, they did have this thing where they'd ring the mindfulness bell and then when the mindfulness bell got rung, whatever you were doing, you're supposed to stop and take three mindful breaths to help you know, be present. Um, but he was a cook in the center. So the cooks were under a lot of stress to get the meal out at the right time. You know. So he said that when they were cooking, you know, they knew they, they sincerely wanted to do this practice with you know, chopping vegetables, and the bell would ring for this. So, letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. But even that, you can notice. You know. <laughs> so notice, you know, however it is, it's fine. If you're like, stressed and rest, so, uh, if you find yourself doing it, just as, you know, because you think you should, or, you know. But just have fun with it. I think the more you can, like, bring it in creatively into your life, the better, right? So consider in your life, like, what are some different ways in which I can bring, make a little mindfulness bells in my life, right? Uh, and you can consider, like, what if I tried to do that three times a day, five times a day? Like, what are some things that could bring that? And also you can consider what's the way in which I can bring mindfulness more into my actual daily activity that I do, so my actual work that I do. Like, what is the work that I do, and how can I be more present in that? Or how can mindfulness 
So it's helping you to do that better yourself. Whether that's uh, you know working with others directly in terms of listening, um, whether it's in terms of the physical activities of your work, um, you know, just to be creative and consider that. So I think in this way, like mindfulness can seep into your individual life, my individual life, and also into all of our lives much more, and like bring it into the culture too. So we actually have completed our uh, eightfold path here with this of mindfulness. Uh, so some of you might wonder what's going to happen next week. <laughs> now that we've uh, finished, and next week um, Eugene is actually going to come back. So uh, he t- spoke to me and uh, said that he wanted to come back to the group, and uh, he was very appreciative of everyone's support. And uh, um, he said also that. Uh, he felt very uh, moved by the well-wishing of everyone. He felt like that has been a significant support in his own recovery. So uh, he'll come and talk to you about all of this. You know, all that. So anyway, this is you know what's going to happen next week. So you do will be back. And you know, I think he still is. Um, his his uh, healing is still continuing a little bit. So he said you know he wants to come and be with the group and teach and um, kind of check it out and then see. Sort of with what frequency in this next period he feels like he can do that because it still is like, you know, possibly strenuous and he's still recovering a little bit, but uh, he's very excited to come back next week to see all of you. So that's uh, my official tenure as a full-time scholar. <laughs> so uh, I'm happy and I uh, appreciate having gotten to spend this time with you. And, uh, thank you so much for your attention over this week. Uh, and you know, I continue to be part of the teaching team here, so I think I'll talk with you soon about what's helpful in this next period as far as my support or some of the other teachers' support too um, ongoing. And meanwhile, I'll continue to be a Gypsy Dharma teacher. So um, <laughs> uh, I'm teaching Tuesday at um, Howard Cohen's group in the mission. And I'm starting to teach a class at the Day Meditation Center on Thursday for four weeks on the four foundations of mindfulness uh, and on and on. So if you want to uh, find me, Define me through my webpage, just underscore.org, where I usually try and keep posted where I'm teaching and things like that. And then also there you can sign up on an email list if you want me to send out some, um, send out some reminders usually like quarterly about what I'm up to. If you want to come to any of them, you're welcome to come and join. Um, and I have a meditation teacher Facebook <laughs> so I'm welcome to join that too, and then I post like, various articles that come up too. So, uh, so also recently there's been a lot of articles about mindfulness. Uh, there's one in Scientific American, and I think usually or Crime or something like that. So it's, uh, mindfulness is sweeping the nation. <laughs> <laughs> good time to get to get on board. You're on the ground floor. <laughs> All right, so let me sit together and share the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.